Good morning, beloved. Good morning, beloved. Amen. So good to be with you this morning and to be uh, in the house of the Lord, to in fact be the house of the Lord in whom he dwells by his spirit. And what a great privilege it is to come to God's word this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Zechariah. And uh, while you're turning there, let me add uh, my word of welcome to those who are visiting with us this morning. We're so glad that you're here. Can't think of any place we would rather you to be. In fact, we want you to be at home. Make yourself at home, kick off your shoes, grab some coffee, a muffin, or, or what have you, and uh, just, just parlay, if you like. Um, and so, welcome. And we pray that you're encouraged as we are encouraged as we sing to our Lord and as we anticipate his coming and uh, look to his grace. Um, beloved, if you um, aren't already aware, do be aware that this afternoon, um, Brother Peterson and Sister Caitlin are celebrating uh, their marriage vows today. They are being married today, so do keep them in prayer uh, as they are united as husband and wife and as we rejoice together with them uh, in that. Everybody found Zechariah yet? Amen. Okay, well, all ears attentive, every heart ready. Every mind focused. Let's pray again for the Lord's blessing. Father, we do as we have been singing. We pray, even so, come. Like a bride waiting for her groom, your church readies herself for you. We have repented of our sins, we have looked to your grace. And now we, we long to hear the news of your coming. Speak, O oh Lord, we pray, with power and clarity, words of grace and comfort, and help us hear your voice this morning, and help us believe in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a little boy, on Saturdays, there was a program called The World... The, 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 I said, I'm going to mess it up. I'm going to mess it up. The Wide World of Sports. Anybody remember that? You probably remember the slogan, right? You see that cat on those skis coming down the ski mountain real, real fast, and, and the commentator says there's the thrill of victory. And then that guy loses his balance and starts tumbling down the cliff and he says, the agony of defeat. I wonder if anybody's ever experienced the agony of defeat. If we've ever lost. And defeat is a stronger word than lost, isn't it? It means somebody beat you. Somebody conquered you. And that little phrase, the agony of defeat, it, 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 it reminds us that there was a hope that was there, wasn't there? The hope of victory, the hope of success, the hope of triumph, the hope of winning, but all of that's been dashed in defeat. Has anybody ever felt defeated? Oftentimes when we're feeling defeated, there's a question that arises in the soul. There are many variations, but it's something like this. Where is God? Where is God in my suffering? Where is God in my defeat? 
That's the question often asked. It was the groan of slaves during the transatlantic slave trade. Phyllis Wheatley even wrote a brilliant poem about it. It was the cry of Native Americans during their long displacement and genocide. Many a Native chief wondered about their gods during their suffering. And it was the cry of Israel during the Holocaust. Indeed, several times during Israel's history, they would wonder if God had forsaken them. And our text this morning, the the book of Zechariah, occurs during one of those periods of Israel's history. The book of Zechariah opens after 42,000 Jews have returned from exile in Babylon and come back into Israel and come back into Judah and Jerusalem, but they have come back a defeated people. The city has been destroyed. The temple has been torn down. All that's left of their former glory is rubble. And they've been tasked to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the city. To restore the place where they once worshipped God and met with him. And we're not surprised if all of Israel is wondering, where is God? What is he doing? Does he not see? Conquered people have a hard time seeing God. The agony of defeat has a way of producing doubt and discouragement and despair. When the people are defeated, they very often do not believe that God is with them. Where is God in our defeat and suffering? What's he thinking? What's he doing? How can we find him again? This morning, the book of Zechariah gives us answers to those questions. Now, Zechariah is regarded as one of the most difficult books of the Old Testament to interpret. So I probably should have preached Philemon or something. And it's, <laughs> and it's, difficult. it's difficult because of the many visions that are in the book that are given in Zechariah. But did you know that it's also one of the most quoted books in the New Testament? The early church and the early Christians looked back to this book and found great hope. And so did Israel. The question is why? Well, Zechariah is the 11th of the 12 minor prophets. He and Haggai, they prophesied to Israel at the same time. Both Haggai and Zechariah were sent to give Israel hope as they were coming out of exile and rebuilding their nation and rebuilding their lives. God sent Haggai with encouragement, with a prophecy, to stir them up to finish rebuilding the temple. God sent Zechariah with prophecy and encouragement to encourage them to rebuild not the temple, but their relationship with God. To restore what had been broken between them and God. And that's one major answer to our question. Where is God in our defeat and our suffering? He's planning our comeback. I come back to him and relationship with him. How does he do that? I want to give you six, six words to hang your thoughts on as we go through Zechariah chapters 1 and 2. These six words are kind of the trajectory of this text this morning. Uh, and it will be the outline for the sermon. The first word is this, repent. God calls Israel to repent. That's what you see in verses 1 to 6. The second word rhymes with it. It's relent. Relent. 
In verses 7 to 17, what we see is God promising to relent, to let go of, to ease up on his judgment against Israel. Repent, relent, repay. God commits himself to repay the enemies of Israel. Number four, restore. God promises to restore Israel. Number five, return. After the repentance and the relentance, the repayment of their enemies, the restoration of the people, then God himself promises to return to be with his people. And number six, reverence. Verse 13, chapter 2. Reverence is restored to the earth. Follow me as we read Zechariah chapter one, chapters 1 and 2. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. And the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these seventy years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my city shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me, showed me four craftsmen. I said, what are these coming to do? 
He said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And, and these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. And I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him, and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls, because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Amen. So how does God work out our comeback when we've been defeated? First thing is, God calls us to repent. That's what we see in verses 1 to 6 with Zechariah's calling to be a prophet. Zechariah starts with the ministry of his, or the date of his ministry there in verse 1. It's the eighth month in the second year of Jarius, which was about 520 B.C. According to the end of verse 12, Israel had been in captivity for about 70 years. Darius was the last ruler who held power over them. This is when, notice, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah. That phrase is a common way in the Old Testament of describing a prophet's calling and describing when God would speak and give revelation to his people. And that's what's happening here with Zechariah. Notice now, the word of the Lord did the coming. It came to Zechariah. Zechariah didn't go get the word himself. Zechariah didn't make up the word himself. God is lowering himself to speak to man. It's fancy nowadays to see people talk about they've got schools of prophets and they're prophet this and prophet that. I don't believe none of them busters. You don't just hang a sign and say, I'm going to train prophets. God must come to the prophet. God must speak to the prophet. The word of the Lord does the coming. And it came to Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom we know very little about. He's not mentioned in the other genealogies, but also son, grandson of Edo, who is one of the priests. Here's a man from a priestly line to whom God has sent his word in the time that his people need to hear from him. 
Zechariah's opening message is simple and it's to the point, isn't it? We can put it in one word. Return or repent. Israel had just left exile. They were defeated and overwhelmed with the task of rebuilding. And so the question is, why in the world, God, do you start with repent? Maybe there's some other, you know, good words to start with. There are more encouraging words to start with. But verse 2 tells us, right, God was angry with their fathers. Earlier generations of Israelites were guilty of the sin of idolatry. They turned away from God. They broke their covenant relationship with God. And Israel's sin and idolatry angered God. Now, it's important, beloved, that we recognize that God gets angry. It's not to be trifled with. Even by his people. So God sent Israel, his chosen people, into exile for their sin. Now there's a generation that has suffered not because of their sin in the first place, but because of their father's sins. But apparently they're also like that earlier generation. They've not yet dealt with the sin in their own hearts. And that's why God begins with the gracious word, return. Repent. Come back to me. In verses 3 and 4. You see how sweet that is? God says, return to me and I will return to you. He's not only capable of a holy anger, he's capable of a holy forgiveness. Return to me and I will, I will come back to you. Now, here's the interesting thing in this text. He, he wants them to learn from their father's error. So he says there in verse 4, they, they, the fathers had refused to listen. But this is the thing, beloved. We, we cannot ignore God's word without paying the cost. So verses 5 and 6, God's word overtook them. It overcame them. God's judgment came upon them. Though they had apparently repented after God's judgment came, you see that there in verse 6, they still had to pay the consequences of their sin and their slow obedience. Beloved, I've once heard the preacher say, delayed obedience is still disobedience. And they were suffering for it. And that's a Powerful picture. God's word overcame them. Beloved, our, our legs are too short to outrun God. When we try to run from God, we're like little one-year-olds and two-year-olds. You ever seen them? Mom and dad say, come here, give me that. They look up, and then they take off, you know, and, and they think they're running like Bolt or Lightning McQueen, right? They just think they're in the wind. And, and what, what does mom and dad do? One or two steps. Scoops them right on up, doesn't it? And so it is with us and God. We, we may try to run, but you can't outrun God. He overcomes us. His word catches us and finds us out, just as, it, just as it did with Israel here. It's better if we repent, if we simply turn back to God when he calls us. In fact, the entire tragedy of exile and captivity was meant to bring God's people back to him. Here's the thing about our defeat. Here's the thing about our suffering. Here's the thing about seeing Hurricane Matthew run through Haiti. Jesus gives us the words for understanding that in Luke chapter 13. When the disciples came to Jesus and said, man, this terrible thing happened. A, a tower in Siloam fell on these people and killed these people. You know what Jesus says there? Repent. That tragedy and suffering 
has at least this goal in our lives. To get our attention and to turn us back to God. Beloved, I love the way my wife puts it. She says, I want to learn to listen to God when he whispers and not make him shout. You feel the Lord tugging on you to repent? Do it quickly. Come back to him. He will come back to you. Notice, secondly, God not only calls him to repent, but God promises that he will relent. That's the point in verses 7 to 17. And now, notice in verse 7, on the 24th day of the 11th month, it's just a couple of months later, which is the month of Shabbat, the second year of Darius, the same year of his reign, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, just as we saw in verse 1, but in verse 8 he says, I saw in the night. In verse 1, the word seems to have been maybe audible, maybe have been formed in his conscience in some way, but God spoke to him. Here now, God speaks to him by vision. And we're reminded of what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. You remember there? That God in various times and in various places spoke to our fathers in, in various ways. And here now, he's using another method to reveal his word to Zechariah. He does it in a vision. And in his vision, Zechariah sees these four horses and a man riding one of the horses, the red horse in particular. Don't be distracted by the colors of the horses. You probably looked at the cross-reference to Revelation and saw, oh man, the horses in Revelation have a different color. What's that mean? Well, we don't know, right? <laughs> the, the point is the man on the horse, all right? There's a man in this text. Now notice, the, the man riding on a red horse... But then he was also standing among the myrtle trees in the glen. But verse 9 tells us Zechariah spoke with an angel. But then verse 10 says, the man among the myrtle trees answered him. And then we come to verse 11. We're told the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees answered him. I think all of these are the same person. I believe it is the vision of Christ before the incarnation. The title of the angel of the Lord shows up as early as Genesis 16 and Genesis chapter 18. You remember when Hagar was, was, was cast away and she was in the desert and, and didn't know how she was going to survive with her son? We're told there that the angel of the Lord came to her. Or in Genesis chapter 18, I believe it is, how the angel of the Lord came to Abraham and spoke to Abraham. And often in the Old Testament, this phrase, the angel of the Lord, is associated with the appearance of God himself. And this, I believe, is a pre-incarnate vision of Christ. But notice what he's doing. Verses 9 to 12 tell us that Christ was among the myrtle trees, the myrtle trees being symbolic of Israel, his people. He's in their midst. He's among them. Notice, notice what he does. The horses have been patrolling all the peoples of the earth. They have been watching and, and they bring back their report. While Israel was suffering, the rest of the nations were at rest. They were not bothered with Israel's captivity. In fact, God says, I meant to punish them a little, but the nations doubled down. They made it worse. But here's the interesting thing. When no one else cared about God's people, notice verse 12. The angel of the Lord prayed for them. He cries out, how long? 
It's been 70 years of God's judgment and anger for their sin. Two generations have been in exile and slavery. Children have been born who never knew freedom. And and though the nations don't care, there is Christ in the midst of the myrtle trees, praying how long, interceding for his people, remembering them with God. You see this vision? Not only does Christ care, but so does God. Notice the tone of God's reply in verse 13. He spoke gracious and comforting words. Is it not beautiful to see God go from being angry to gracious and comforting at the intercession of His Son? God relents of His punishment. He lets up. He, he steps back. He, he stops their judgment. Then comes the promise. God's, God's anger. Notice in verses 14, 15, 14 and 15. God's anger shifts from Israel to the nations that were at ease. In verse 14, he was exceedingly jealous for Israel. He, he loves them as the apple of his eye. But then in verse 15, he's exceedingly angry with the nations. Beloved, God will not always be angry with his people. And he will not always be patient with unbelievers. Listen, an unjust people are an unsafe people when God decides to judge. It is better to be defeated by enemies and loved by God than to be at ease in the world and angering God. There is no end of God's love and there is no escaping of God's wrath. Which side ought we to be on? His love or his wrath. And we can see why this would have been encouragement to Israel in Zechariah's day, don't we? If, you, if you're God's people, then you know trouble won't last always. Uh, we're fond of saying that weeping may endure for a night, but what? Joy comes in the morning. In our defeats, we have to keep our eye on the gracious and compassionate character of God. And and you may be here this morning feeling like you're a candle whose flame is about to go out. Listen, beloved, God will not snuff you out. You may feel like a single dry blade of grass already bent from the dryness, but, but God will not trample over you. God will not crush you. His punishment, if it is punishment that we're experiencing, was not designed to destroy, but to call us back. So God answered gracious and comforting words to Israel. God calls his people to repent. Then God promises to relent. Number three, God commits to repay Israel's enemies. That's the point of verses 18 to 21. There we saw the vision of the four horns and the four craftsmen. Zechariah asked the question, what are these four horns? And and the Bible teaches us that horns are often used as a symbol of strength. Keep in mind that Israel was an agricultural and a herding people. And so they were accustomed to animals, the stronger of the animals, being the ones with horns. And so horns became associated with strength. And here God is saying, listen, the four horns are are, are representative of the powers of the earth that, notice in verse 21, have scattered Judah and have left them unable to raise their heads. Those are the ones that Israel knew as their defeaters. But notice now four craftsmen come on the scene. 
And Zechariah wants to know, what's the deal with these craftsmen? These craftsmen are those who, who work in various materials, leather and, 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 and metals and, and wood and so on. These craftsmen come on the scene and notice God's plan. God's plan, verse 21, is to use these craftsmen to frighten the horns. These, these are people that God will raise up. These are powers that God will raise up to repay those who have, who have afflicted his people. Craftsmen who are skilled, leaders who are skilled, powers that are skilled and will overcome the powers of the nation. Beloved, when God plans to come back of his people, he doesn't leave their enemies in power. He terrifies them with his judgment. They're cut down. Their strength is taken. Think about the nations that once controlled Israel, Babylon and Persia. Anybody bought a plane ticket to Babylon or Persia lately? They're not known on the earth anymore. Their horns have been torn down. This is why, beloved, God's people never have to take vengeance on their enemies. God will repay. Think back to another point in Israel's history when they were coming out of slavery in Egypt centuries earlier. Near the end of the book of Deuteronomy, when, when God has used Moses like a craftsman to defeat the horn of Pharaoh in Egypt and has led Israel out of captivity and, and toward the promised land, in the end of Deuteronomy, that long sermon, Moses is given a song. And in the midst of that song, Moses says these words, Deuteronomy 32 verses 35 and 36. God speaking through this song, vengeance is mine and recompense or repayment. For the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, speaking of Egypt, and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. When he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining bond or free. You see the picture of God that we get there? He sees his servants in slavery. He sees them in bondage. He sees them with no strength. And God himself repays the mightiest nation on earth at the time, Egypt. He says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And it's no wonder that that, that phrase is picked up in the New Testament, isn't it? In two places. Paul refers to it in Romans chapter 12, verse 19. He says, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. I will repay. Teaching us that we are not to seek vengeance on our enemies, but to heap coals of kindness on their heads. And the writer of Hebrews does the same thing. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 30 and 31, he quotes this very text. He says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Then he says this in verse 31. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But God's people recognize that it is more terrible for our enemies to fall into the hands of our God than for them to fall into our hands. What can we do? Maybe destroy the body. What can God do? Destroy both the body and soul in hell. God will repay the enemies of his people. And he will do it justly. He will do it terrifyingly. And it will be part of how he works the comeback of his people. Number four. 
Not only does God promise to repay our enemies, but notice God promises to restore Israel. That's first alluded to in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. You see that there? Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my city shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. You know, it's, it wouldn't be a comeback if what had been lost in their defeat wasn't actually restored. I mean, think of what Israel had lost. Everything. They'd lost their land, and with it, their homes. They had lost family members and loved ones in exile. They'd lost the temple. And with it, the meeting place of their God. Worship was destroyed. Sacrifices were outlawed. Everything they had known had been taken. It wouldn't be too much to say that they had lost their very identities, their very selves. So utter was the destruction. The comeback has to include the restoration. So notice what 16 and 17 hold out for us. There's first of all a restored relationship with God. He says, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. Isn't that beautiful and hopeful? Then there's a picture of restored worship. My house shall be built in it. They've been sent there to rebuild the temple and it will be rebuilt. The zeal of the Lord will perform it. Then there's a picture of the restored land. The the measuring line shall be stretched out over it. And finally, there's the picture of restored prosperity in verse 17. In summary, Israel will know God's blessing of prosperity and comfort and having been chosen as his beloved. Now, Zechariah chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, picks up that vision again. Look there. The man is sent to measure Jerusalem's width and length in verse 2. We're told that the capital, uh, in verse 4, will overflow with people who have returned to the land. And they will be saved. That's what's meant there by villages without walls. In the ancient world, walls provided defense and safety against the armies and bandits of the day. But not in this vision. Israel's enemies are defeated. God, notice in verse 5, will be their wall of protection. He will be the fire that surrounds them. And isn't that an interesting picture of the reversal of the garden? When Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, God set their angels with flaming swords to wall off the garden from their return. Here, now, God has returned to Israel, not with angels of flaming swords, but himself now walling Israel in as his beloved. God will defend them. God will protect them. And indeed, Israel did return to the land, and they did experience his his prosperity. The city and the temple were rebuilt. The exiles knew safety and blessing, but beloved, those weren't the main things. There's something else in this comeback. Number five, God returns to his people. Look again at verses 6 to 12. Up, up, free from the land of the north, declares the Lord. 
For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus said the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you, touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. This is a majestic passage. See there in verses 6 to 9, God giving Zechariah this urgent message. Go, flee, up, tell the people to come back to Jerusalem. God there identifying with his people. You are the apple of my eye. Among all the nations, you are most beautiful to me. I behold you with love. And I will shake my hand, verse 9, over your enemies, and they shall become plunder for those whom you have served. And you will know that it was the Lord who sent me. But the verse pushes on to something else. Verses 6 to 9, verses 6 to 10 are, are really fulfilled in Israel's day. They will end up singing and rejoicing as a nation as they are returned back to the land from exile. But that was not the greatest part of the comeback. Verse 11 tells us of a much greater fulfillment. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. God envisions a day when many nations of the earth will come to him. He envisions a day when the Gentiles, not just Israel, but the non-Jews of the world, will worship him and be his people. It's then that he will dwell most fully in Israel's midst, and everyone will know that he is the Lord of hosts. This is not a picture of the church and missions. This is a picture of the spread of the gospel to all nations. It's a vision of God gathering for himself a people who were no people. And all the nations will, notice that language there, join themselves to the Lord. Will be united with him by faith. Beloved, verse 11 includes you and me. Verse 11 includes Southeast D.C. And Northeast D.C. And all the inner cities of the world. God had his eye on Israel, yes, but God also had his eye on us. We who believe and have become his inheritance. And this is why, beloved, we give part of our budget to missions. This is why we have presentations like the one we had last Thursday night from our sister, our Filipino sister, who serves the gospel in Thailand. This is why we want to be reminded of the spread of the gospel around the world. God is a missionary God. His people are a missionary people. And we long for the day, as we were singing a moment ago, even so come, we long for the day when all the nations are brought to him in repentance and faith. 
Of course, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ, aren't they? Think about the pattern of things in these two chapters. We start with repent. We move to relent. Then there is repay, restore, and God's return. Isn't that the pattern of the gospel itself? When Jesus first steps on the scene in the gospel, what's the first word he says? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That call that went to Israel comes to us too, to return to the Lord. Then what does our Lord go on to preach? He tells us that God will relent of his judgment. He tells us that he has not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. And how does he tell us that? Well, he tells us in the wonderful words of John 3.16, doesn't he? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not, what, perish. That's relenting. But have everlasting life. Doesn't Jesus defeat or repay all of our enemies? We've already seen that Romans 12, 19 and Hebrews 10, we quote that verse from Deuteronomy 32, that, that vengeance is the Lord's, that he will repay. But consider how Jesus on the cross conquers everything that would conquer us. Sin, Satan, death, judgment, and hell. Consider how the early church thought about Jesus' defeat of all of our enemies. If you want, you can turn with me to Romans chapter 8 verses 31 to 39. This majestic passage which shows us as Christ, our victor, our, our triumph, our captive, and our defeat of our enemies. Paul gets caught up, I believe, in the Spirit, and he writes these words beginning in verse 31 of Romans 8. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No! In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, I am sure, I am sure, are you sure, beloved? I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Has Christ not repaid all our enemies and defeated all our foes? Christ is our victory. And not only has he repaid, but does he not restore? This is what the Lord says. He says, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. And the resurrection will be the final and full restoration of all that we have suffered and all that we have lost. Christ restores. And finally, does not Jesus promise 
he will return to us. Think of those beloved words in John 14, 1 to 3. Let not your hearts be troubled. You that believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, or you maybe learned the phrase mansions. If it were not so, would I have not told you that I go to a place to prepare for you? And if I go, the Lord says, and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. When he comes, the nations will be his and we will be with him and he will be in the midst of us and his glory will be our joy and his face will be our delight. Christian, are you feeling defeated in some way? Do you feel that God has in some way forgotten or forsaken you? What, what do you imagine the future to hold for you? How will you return to Christ? There's only one way. It's by returning to Christ. It's by turning back to Him. Come to him and he will come to you again and again and again. We heard that beautiful testimony from our sister Karen this morning. Of coming to her senses and coming again to Christ. And did you hear the testimony of newfound love for his word and, and fresh fellowship with Christ. And in our repentance we experience what's written in this word. Christ coming again and again to us. All that we need for our comebacks, Christ has provided. All that we need for a renewed relationship with God is found in Christ the Lord. Christian, if you have wandered off or if you have forgotten your way, stop and turn and come back to God. He will not crush you. He will come to you himself. Indeed, you will find he's been following you down that road all along. My friend, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, I wonder if you see what you need. You need to go from being at ease outside of the people of God to being at one with the people of God and Christ the Son. That can only happen if you too come to Christ. You must repent of your sins. You must confess them to God. And you must see that God is angry with you, just as he was angry with us because of your sin. But you must also believe that he will relent of his punishment. And the evidence that he has given you of that is the crucifixion of his son. On the cross, God is proving to you and me that yes, he was angry, and yes, he is holy, and yes, he will punish sin. But also, yes, he's gracious, he's kind, he's compassionate, and he will not always be angry. He will satisfy his judgment on the back of his son on the cross, rather than satisfy his judgment on you. 
if you return to him from your sin and put your faith in Christ. And he has promised that he will restore all that you have lost and much more in a full relationship with Jesus Christ. This is why he raised Jesus from the dead, so that he would defeat death and that he would defeat the grave and so that we would live a full and eternal life in his love and in his glory. He holds out to you hope and joy and pleasure that you cannot imagine. Come to him. Confess your sin. Trust in Christ. And then the hope of his coming to be with his people will be your hope too. You want to know more about what that involves? Talk to any of the Christians who are here this morning. Maybe the friends who invited you. See me or one of the pastors after the service. We'd like nothing more than for you to know this hope of living with God forever. Free of his judgment and full of his love. And beloved, this text has a lot to say to us about our society too, doesn't it? Too much, really, so we won't linger here. Election is coming up, and and it's a hot mess. I don't care who you're pulling for, right? We we look out on our community, and and we we see some messes in our community too, don't we? How are we going to come back as a community? It's not by gentrification. I mean, we can move new people in, push old people out, fix up the buildings, and make this a a comeback story of sorts. That's not what the Bible is after. The Bible envisions a restoration for all people and a gathering of all people to Christ, who is their home, not a displacement of people. It won't be by gentrification. It won't be by the election of presidents. That's, that's not our comeback. We'll only come back from the devastation that we see in the world, as local as our own neighborhood, as national as presidential elections, if in fact we come back to Christ. All of the ground, beloved, is sinking sand. Of all the things we will do, which will be important in our world, from advocacy and lawmaking, to community development and investment in business, to the buying of homes and the getting to know our neighbors, all of which is important, the most fundamental thing beneath it all, the most important thing in it all, is that we always be turning to Christ our Lord. When Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg, the first of his theses, or early in his theses, was this, this, this notion here, that when Christ called us to repent, he meant that we should keep on repenting. And may we be that people who keep on returning to our God. And may we be that people who keep finding God coming back to us. That's our future. That's what Zechariah saw. May it be what we experience. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these chapters which make it so plain that at least for your people, every defeat is temporary. 
you have in fact conquered. You are now ruling. The nations are yours. The peoples of the earth are yours. Even Satan and his demons have been cast into the pit by your hand. Help us, O Lord, to look up beyond our circumstance. To look up from the rubble. And help us to look out and see the promise. The promise of your return and our being with you. The promise of restoration. The promise of defeating our enemies. And the, and the promise of reverence. Oh Lord, help us to lay hold to this vision which you state in verse 13 of chapter 2. You have stood. Let all the earth tremble and be silent in reverence for your name. Oh Lord, give us first of all this reverence and then fill the earth with the fear of your name. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, our concluding hymn really celebrates the theme of our text. You'll find it on page 8. It's no wonder that Christians through the centuries have loved thinking about the coming of Christ. Paul in the Bible says it's our blessed hope, the glorious appearing of, the Lord, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is what helps us look beyond this life with hope and with joy. And so on page 8, the hymn writer celebrates this. He says, Lo, or behold, he comes with clouds descending, once for favorite sinners slain, thousand, thousand saints attending, swell the triumph of his train. In other words, the crowds behind him just keep growing. Well, notice what they shout. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. God appears on earth to reign. And this will be no secret coming. This won't be done in a corner somewhere. Notice the, verse, the second verse. Every eye shall now behold him, rolled in dreadful or, or awesome majesty. Those who set at naught and sold him, pierced and nailed him to the tree, or even those who opposed Jesus, notice, deeply wailing, deeply wailing, deeply wailing, shall the true Messiah see. Now redemption long expected, see in solemn pomp appear all his saints by men rejected, now shall meet him in the air. Hallelujah, 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 see the day of God appear. Yea, amen, let all adore thee. High on thine eternal throne, Savior, take the power and glory. Claim the kingdom for thy own. Oh, come quickly. Oh, come quickly. Oh, come quickly. Everlasting God, come down. This is the anthem of every Christian heart. Let us sing it out loud and glad. Let's stand and sing together.